I was really curious about this phenomenon that you saw in popular media where people were calling Vladimir Putin irrational. You know, all the people falling out of windows, you know, and a whole number of things that are happening over and over again. There's this definite insinuation. It seems clear that he is consolidating his power. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Rachel Melling of the Mad Scientist team and- Whoa, 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 what's going on here? I usually do the intros. Oh, hey Matt. There's been a slight change in the schedule this time. Not only am I going to do the intro, but Rachel and I will be taking over as hosts for this episode. Hi, I'm Kate Kilgore and I'm an intelligence analyst with the Tradoc G2. So just like that, Luke and I are out. Exactly. But you can come back next episode. Maybe. Well, okay. Have a good episode. Thank you. Now, as I was saying, I'm Rachel Melling of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Kate Kilgore, intelligence analyst for Tradoc G2. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we're talking with Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Colvin, Army War College Fellow at the College of William & Mary. We're talking with Nate about his recent Mad Scientist blog post, how game theory can help us better understand rationality, and some of the cognitive differences between world leaders and societies. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. It's been a lifelong dream of mine to be an Army Mad Scientist, and I hope this is my final step in becoming an Army Mad Scientist, so I'm pretty excited to be here. Perfect. Yeah, well, we'll talk to the big guys to see uh, what we can do about that. So we brought you here today, and we want you to kind of talk about some more of the ideas that you had when you were writing your Mad Sci blog post a couple months back. So before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I think uh, it's probably important to talk about a little bit of uh, who I am through the perspective of the Army. And I've been in for about 21 years now, and I can say I've got about 21 countries underneath my belt, so one country for each year, I guess. And that ranges everywhere from you know, doing humanitarian assistance for Pakistan flood relief, uh, you know, the, the regular rotations to Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and also spending some time in the Baltics working with NATO after the 2014 Wales Summit, reinforcing the defenses in the East. So I've been really lucky to have that opportunity with the Army to live inside of those structures and the institutions and everything that makes that possible. And, and growing up from the tactical level all the way to the strategic level, I like to say I've gotten to work with people to presidents, uh, thanks to the Army. There's no other way I can I can imagine that I would have been able to do that. And I've had some really amazing opportunities educationally as well with the Army. They paid for two bachelor's degrees, three master's degrees, uh, a PhD level graduate certificate in modeling and simulation, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. And, and um, I'm, I'm working on my PhD dissertation now, which isn't necessarily Army funded, but uh, it wouldn't be possible without the Army. And I'm a fellow now at the College of William and Mary in the Public Policy Department, which is an Army War College Fellowship. So these opportunities are one of a kind, and I, I definitely encourage anybody that is thinking about a career in public service to think about the Army as the way to go, because it's been really good to me, for sure. So, 
Yeah, that's a little bit about me. All right. Thanks so much, sir. So in your uh, previous Mad Scientist blog post that you wrote a couple months back, you discuss using game theory in relation to rationality of actors. Can you expand on this idea a bit more, as well as describe the case study you used and how you went about testing it? I was actually in class as part of my PhD at Old Dominion. I got two specialties. One is conflict and cooperation, and the other one is modeling and simulation. So one of the modeling and simulation classes was game theory. And I am certainly not you know, a mathematician or a theorist by trade. But this was a tool that I thought was important to have in my toolkit. And I had a a really great professor by the name of Professor Richmond who not only got the material across to us, he also made sure that uh, like a lot of the department folks, that each one of our papers was publishable. And so that really helped push this project along. But, you know, before the paper got published, you had to think about what it was going to be. And so as somebody that studies and thinks a lot about Europe, the three seas region especially, and Russia security situations. I was really curious about this phenomenon that you saw in popular media where people were calling Vladimir Putin irrational or a madman or someone who just was a bad strategist. And I thought, well, on one hand, obviously there's a lot of things we disagree with with Vladimir Putin, but on the other hand, he stayed in power for, you know, dozens of years. So there has to be something more to this than just saying, you know, this this guy is a lunatic, right? Which is what a lot of the popular narrative was at the time. So I wanted to think a little bit more about what what is rationality? What what kind of rationality are we talking about? And I think people that are, are steeped in philosophy probably knew this better than I did, which was there's really two trains of thought when it comes to rationality. One is that rationality means that you're seeking the good, right? Like that you're trying to find the most best solution. While other people seek a rationality just says each person has a goal or each actor has a goal and they'll do whatever they need to do to to achieve that goal. And so a little bit of what was happening is people were using two different meanings for the same word in the popular dialogue that was going on. So I said, okay, well, let's separate this and say that, you know, this is a social construct. And, you know, from a red teaming point of view, each culture has its own set of criteria of what's good and bad to a certain extent. Uh, Obviously there's some things that we all hold universally bad, but let's, let's just assume that this person is seeking to, to achieve their interests. So what are those interests and, and, and how do they go about achieving them? So one thing I, I like to say is that you, you might not be interested in relativism, but relativism might be interested in you. And that's kind of the thing that we see happening here is that um, just because uh, another actor doesn't hold our same value set doesn't mean that we can't understand what they might do rationally speaking from a logical sense. Uh, if A happens, then B happens, right? Not that we agree with it, but can we follow a chain of events and come to a conclusion before that conclusion happens? And so if we assume that people set their goals and then do things to achieve them, that's really kind of the first step to that. Uh, And then without constraints, people would seek what they want, basically, right? So the other thing you have to figure out is what are the goals, but also what are the constraints? What are the things that are in the environment that 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 actor is embedded in that's going to keep them from achieving their goals because that then will be the obstacles that they're trying to maneuver around and those will dictate their behaviors. So actually what I did uh, in a recent ModSim World presentation, it's a nice conference that we have down in Norfolk every year that ITSIC puts on in addition to their conference in Orlando every year. I talked a little bit about the design process in a a different paper 
Uh, and I basically had six steps using red teaming tools to, to develop the social model. The first thing was p- to put people first. So think about the people first. Don't think about the laws. Don't think about the institutions. Don't think about anything else. What do the people, and I mean like individuals, the population level, what is it that, what is their conditions? What are they seeking, right? Is this a very poor country that's on the rise? Is it a poor country that's stagnating? Is it a rich country that stagnating? You know, there's all kinds of combinations, but what is happening to the people, you know? And you can always use Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a great way to understand societally, not just individually, kind of where people reside, right? Are they struggling to make it every day and live? Because that's going to create a different set of behaviors than people who are uh, in a well-developed state, have a nice social safety net, and can spend a lot of time thinking about their problems, right? Because then you'll get a whole lot more abstract cognitive type of problems that can vary in a lot of different ways. So you have to go through that process of kind of understanding what the situation is. And a, a lot of times in a big place, there's going to be different, I guess you could say blobs of actors, right? When you think about the population, there's some rich people, there's some middle class people, there's others. So what are the dominant kind of characteristics of all those groups and just kind of think through that. Then the second thing is relationship matters. So as you start identifying who those actors are, what are the ways they interact? Not so much about what their interactions are, but you know, are they interacting because they're forced to through a government situation of laws, right? Or uh, taxation or whatever the military service. Is, is it a conscript type army or is it a, a volunteer type army? There's all these characteristics of, of kind of now getting more into like the institutional rules. We're doing it backwards, right? We still haven't talked about the institutions. We're talking about the rules that the institutions implement, but we're doing it backwards for a reason so we don't get biased by what we think the institutions represent. Because when we talk about culture, there's assumptions, there are artifacts, And then there's the actual values, the core values that are important. So if you work your way backwards through there, you can sometimes defeat the bias of of approaching it from where you start with your values. And then you come to a kind of an improper understanding of the artifacts and assumptions. So that's a great thing that red teaming teaches us. What do people want is the third step. So what are the motivations behind them? We talked about a little bit about what their starting conditions are, what their directions are. So what are the valence of their motivations? Are they in an agricultural society and now they're building an industrial society? Are they in an industrial society that's getting, you know, transitioning to a service economy? Or are they in an agriculture economy jumping straight to a service economy, right? There's all these things that technology can impact as well in those situations. But if you think back again to Maslow's hierarchy needs, you can approach those motivations about what people want. That's the third step. The fourth step is how do the goals interact. So now we're going back to relationships. So we're kind of like, there's a theme here where we look at the state of being and then we look at the state, the, the process of becoming and we go back and forth between those two steps back and forth to kind of build an understanding. So when we start to think about how goals interact, we start to see why people may make choices that don't make sense at, at first glance. Like, why would a country invade another country if they know they're going to get sanctioned? Which was one of the fundamental questions I had, because it seemed like most of the things that Vladimir Putin was doing were not in the best interest of Russian security. You know, for example, China is probably the number one strategic threat to Russia from a geopolitical standpoint. So why are they in an alliance with them compared to a NATO who's a purely defensive alliance that doesn't actually serve a threat? And we'll get to how that plays out. But those were some of the questions that when I thought about what, how goals interact, those things started to come into to focus a little bit more. Step number five, what's the central actor of concern? Because that's going to identify your independent variable in, in the study. So in this case, you know, I already knew I was interested in about 
what President Putin was doing. So in that case, everybody else was kind of a dependent variable on him. So establishing what kind of framework would be necessary to understand him came about during that step five process. And I used, uh, in this case, um, uh, Robert Putnam's two-level game theory uh, to, to kind of think through that problem set. And we'll talk about that a little bit more too. And then the last step is backwards check your outcomes, right? So you can build forecasted worlds from inside of these game theories based on what the choices would say. So you say, if actor A does this, actor B does this, and actor C does this, this is what the world would look like. And you don't try to guess whether or not that would happen. You just describe those worlds. You go through every possible combination of those things. In this case, it led to eight different worlds. And you just kind of build a narrative around what that world would look like. And then you set that aside until the end of the game. Then you go back and do your choices. And then when you get to your choice, you now have a description of what that world looks like. And you can compare it to, is this what the world looks like today? Is this what we expect it could look like tomorrow? And then you can do some additional analysis there. But if you start with the story and then run with the story to decide how they're gonna act, you're bias biasing yourself again. So you gotta kinda you build it up front, but then set it aside, and then come back to it at the end and backwards check. So I, I talked a little bit about studying Vladimir Putin and, and talking about the relationship, I think, in, in step two, what are the relationships to the people? Well, Kenneth Waltz is an international relations theorist who's kind of the father of neorealism, and he wrote a book called Man, the State, and War. And that, that book actually is pretty constructivist in its viewpoint that it includes kind of three different levels of analysis and it's pretty complete as saying like from the person all the way to the leader and to the interstate system, these are how these things kind of interact and they're all important to the international relations field. From that point on though, Kenneth Waltz kind of abandoned the other two lenses and he stuck kind of completely with the anarchy of the international system and state on state relationships. And that's kind of dominated international relations theory, and I'd say not recently so much, but that's kind of traditionally in the world I grew up in, the way international relations was taught. This is what's good for state A, this is what's good for state B, let's see if they cooperate or whether they, they conflict. And then you get all the traditional bandwagoning and balancing of power and all the other things that come along with that. But when you reintroduce those other two lenses into the equation, you get some different outcomes than you would have thought of at the beginning. So. That's kind of what, what I did as well. And the reason for that is, is because we see kind of time and again that culture, uh, religion, individual tastes, even language and other things keep interceding into the equation beyond what's best state on state, right? And you see that not just within states or in the actions of the behaviors of state, but you see it in transnational organizations, whether it's transnational crime organizations or... Uh, multilateral organizations like the OSCE or alliances like NATO. There's some values that are held throughout different countries that 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 aren't necessarily contained without in borders, and so that again isn't necessarily very well explained by pure state-on-state -state interactions. So when I look at it from a constructivist point of view, which is kind of how I categorize myself as opposed to like realist or a liberal, uh, my basic rule is anarchy is what you make of it. And so realism is real, liberalism is real, but so are another, uh, so are any number of a schools of thoughts, uh, and it's dependent on the situation that you're in, right? So realism, for example, is great when you're down to your base instincts. In times of conflict, realism is gonna reign uh, when things are really threatened. But at the end of the day, liberalism is how we define ourselves because our values decide who we are. So they aren't necessarily the placements one for the other. They're complementary and they're compatible. 
So there's this whole interest versus value debate, right? And I think it's a false dichotomy. Uh, the number one thing you value are your interests, and the thing you're most interested in should be your values, right? So we're really kind of just kind of recategorizing the same stuff. You know, what is important to us? An interest, an existential interest for the United States, for example, is the survival of the country, right? And that's national defense. Well, that's something we value, right? So it's just a, it's a different type of value. And again, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you can categorize these things in almost the same order as he does for an individual you can do with a society. So I think when you get into a debate about, you know, are we interest driven or are we value driven? Maybe it's time to reframe the conversation a little bit because you might just be arguing over semantics at that point. But what's important is where you sit is where you stand. And if you look at the traditional approaches of, of two states pursuing their interest, you're going to find out that like things just don't seem to make sense. Why are states doing these things that don't seem to be in their best interest when they play out? And in fact, they'll repeat doing the same things again. And you'll see like more sanctions be in place. You know, you saw that in Iraq. Why is Saddam Hussein doing these things over and over again? They, he knows the United States is not going to allow him to go through. So why does he continue to do it? Because there's more than just the two actors. It's not state on state. You have the leaders, right? And especially in an autocratic government, that leader has basically carte blanche to do what they uh, can within the control that they can maintain inside of their selectorate, the selectorate being the elites around them that they choose uh, to be in power. And so how do you how do you account for this? What's the structure? What's the framework? Well, Robert Putnam, which is famous for the, the book Bowling Alone, uh, also had this idea about a two-level game. And basically, it was from a negotiation perspective, when you send a negotiator in, uh, in an international uh, negotiation situation, that person has to get the best outcome for their country while also finding a win for the other country they're negotiating for. So basically the first level is satisfying the domestic audience, then you have the negotiator in the middle, and then the second level is the international audience, the other person you're debating with. Well, you can also use that as a decision-making framework. So if you put the national leader in that negotiator seat, you can easily see how they would need to please their domestic audience either to get reelected or not to get overthrown, whether it's a democratic government or an autocratic government, respectively, but also has to play the game in the national sphere, either for the actual benefit of his country or as a straw man to distract the domestic audience from its own problems. So there's this constant calculation that goes on. Now, in a democracy, for us, the bias is that, you know, that negotiator is going to do what's best for the country. Why? Because we have distribution of power. People don't stay in power forever. So there's really no benefit for them to look out only for themselves. But that's not how things work in an autocracy, right? And that's one of the things we have to keep in mind. In an autocracy, it's all about the autocrat, right? It's all about the prince, right? So number one is it's it's kind of like a hedonistic treadmill that you get on. I call it autocratic treadmill. Once you're on there, you can't get off because if you get off, you know, that's when all your secrets spill out, right? And when your secrets spilled up, that's where everybody starts seeking revenge. You either lose your assets or you lose your life. So once you decide you're going to be an autocrat, you kind of have to go all in on it. And that just continuously sets up this process of how do I rob Peter to pay Paul uh, in order to stay in power or to increase my power, to increase my time in office. And I think the fact that we see very few autocrats leave office peacefully is, is a signal that, you know, there's something natural, a natural phenomenon back b behind that that causes that to be so. And I, I take it back to this idea of absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if you put someone in a situation, it's natural human tendency to keep pursuing your interests and uh, or your values, not to fall prey to my own criticism earlier. 
So that's where we're at. So now we've got these different levels that went different things. We have different types, different forms of government in the international sphere interacting with each other. And you can see how there could be a friction point. So one example is if the domestic audience is not pleased with where they're at, right, you'll get a populist type situation where the people are trying to do what's best for the domestic situation. Meanwhile, the international situation is maybe pushing towards globalism, which is seeking efficiencies for a broad market, right? So these two things are in tension and the negotiators in the middle. How a democratic leader deals with that is going to be different than how an autocratic leader uh, deals with that most likely. But at the end of the day, the negotiator that's in between those two has to figure out a way forward between those two levels. And that's kind of what the game is really all about. I couldn't have said that in a, any longer way, I don't think, but uh, it's figuring out what the negotiator is going to do. Who is that negotiator? What's that, what's that position that they're in? Are they a Democrat or an autocrat or something in between? And how does that drive their behavior? And when that behavior gets driven, how does that affect the people? What do the people do? And then how do the external actors and how do they react to it? And so that's how you get a three-player game from those different theorists that are out there. Thank you. That was such a great laydown for some of your ideas really and the long process. One. Really yeah. long laydown. Sorry. <laughs> we love it. The more information, the better. So yeah, that was a great laydown of your ideas and your process for how you set up the tests that you conducted. And I kind of wanted to hone in a little bit more on the focus that you put on leaders and their rationality and decision making because that kind of leads into the idea of cognition and the way we think about things, the way things are perceived, the way that societies perceive things can be different than others. And so when you're doing something such as game theory and using that as the test, how do you harmonize applying a quantifiable measure to the qualitative nature of cognition? You might find this answer disappointing uh, because I'll say just off the bat, just because it has numbers doesn't mean it's quantitative, right? And I'll say that completely about the work that I produced. So from a data perspective, you have quantitative and qualitative data, you know, and then you have mixed methods that, that combine the two. On the quantitative side, you have discrete data and continuous data, right? That's, you know, kind of the difference between arithmetic and calculus not to get deep in it because I'm not a mathematician, but you know, there's, there's different forms of data, but it tells you about the nature of the thing that you're studying. On the qualitative side, you have categories, and that's when you deal with numbers in qualitative studies, you basically have nominal type of, of categories and you have ordinal types of categories. The nominal types is about names. So what's the color of this thing? What's the name of this thing? What's its family that it lives in? An ordinal uh, category will put things in rank order and it helps you kind of understand preference, sequence, etc. So the extent of the numbers and, and the decision tree that I built was ordinal rankings, right? So basically I took a six point scale, seven point scale, it was zero plus one plus two plus three minus one minus two minus three. Each actor had basically six reactions that they could have to the operating environment. And that was the score of their preferences. And the way I think about that is kind of like a Likert scale. Like you get a survey in the mail and it's like, how did you enjoy your doctor's appointment? Did you enjoy your filling that you got in your tooth? Very much, very little, a lot, you know, right? And it's got those categories that go through. That's basically how we're using numbers in this study, right? Now, that being said, um, ordinal data is pretty powerful, right? It allows you to think about choice, right? So. If you get to a choice and you can either choose a very painful filling or a very comfortable filling situation at your dentist, you'll probably choose the very comfortable 
situation, right? Unless you have some other piece of history that you you have in your background, like you just really want to be a tough guy, right? Like, and you have an image thing, right? So maybe we discover that through the course of the analysis of red teaming, right? As we learn about your background, history, whatever. But for the most part, people follow human nature, right? And, and those are the general principles that I talked about earlier. And we can learn about all that and we can explore all that and it helps create clear choices and understanding in our minds so we don't get lost in kind of our feelings on the matter. So ordinal data helps us separate our feelings from what we think are facts based on what we do in our research, and our literature research and, and our analysis. Now, that being said, you can take you can go quantifiable, right? You could take all that choice that I did in my decision tree and then you could put probabilities behind it. And that would involve, you know, much more intensive understanding of various factors and how to capture them and whether the data is accurate and everything else. And I would much prefer you talk to an ORSA or a data scientist about that because they're going to steer you in the right direction. For the purposes of my study, what I really wanted to do is show here's a logical way that Putin could do what he was doing and it makes sense. It didn't have to be aligned with our values. It didn't have to be aligned with what we want out of the world. But if I said, this is what Putin wants out of the world, here's the way he's going to approach getting there. And I'm going to draw you a roadmap that shows those decisions and, and why the West does what it does, why the people don't revolt, etc. And you go, well, okay, there's at least one case where this could be true, right? And so now you've disproved the null hypothesis in that case, right? Like, so there's at least one case out there that exists. So you can say, well, this is probably true. So if we think about Social science in general, I always think me mixed methods is the most powerful method because number one, quantifiable data when it exists is generally pretty good as long as it's rigorous and we understand what it actually means and we're just not throwing numbers out willy-nilly. But at the same time, human nature is hard to quantify. So sometimes we have to use other types of logic. And I think that's one reason like in economics, you see the economic man kind of being pushed to the wayside in, in exchange for behavioral economics because there's more to it than what is the most efficient solution for, for exchange, right? There's more to it as there's, there's what are my individual preferences? What are my reactions? What are my emotional reactions? Are there fear-based reactions that will keep me from making the most efficient choice, right? So those kinds of decisions can be explained qualitatively. And we assign numbers for clarity and ease of use, but it isn't necessarily a quantitative study in that regard. There is much more that could be done quantifiably. Sometimes if you go too deep in quantifiable data, you come to answers that seem very clearly to be true, but they aren't. You don't see the exceptions as clearly as when you deal with qualitative data. It's powerful. It should always be used. If you're trying to figure out the rate of march of, a, of an army, right? quantitative data is the way to go. But you should also be aware of what are the individual characteristics of that army's past history? Do they have problems because they're a conscript force? Do they, you know, there are a number of other factors. What's their morale, right? Morale is always, you know, the classic case of how do I quantify morale, right? So that's again, going back to mixed methods, quantifiable data is good, but qualitative data is necessary. So how do we then best balance it? So I think I, expertly avoided your question directly, but I hope I talked about some things that are at least somewhat interesting. You've mentioned a lot about political theory and philosophy, and I don't want to get too in the weeds on that, but at the risk of painting you into a corner a little bit with this question, how do you know that you're asking the right questions and assigning the right qualitative values in these studies? You know, when actors choose an option that's not considered or 
even just the unpredictability of human decision making within an individual, not to mention within a society. Can you explain to us a little bit about how you considered those adaptations to changes in circumstances and potential variance in leader interpretation of real world events or a people's interpretation of real world events colored by their own orientation um, versus ours. I'll go back and say that first of all, like this wasn't supposed to be a predictive paper, right? It wasn't saying like, I want to predict what Russia is going to do next. It just happened that when I wrote it in 2021, what happened next was what I predicted, right? And it just, great, you know, but what were the chances? Who knows? But, But what we were showing was, is here's a way that this possible future could be true. And here's, you know, how these other possible futures could be true. So you know, it was more of a sense-making orientation to say like, if you see these things happening in the environment, expect that these things could happen. You know, if these these other things happen in the environment, expect that this is probably the way they should go. But I think that goes back to the same kind of problem I was talking about with quantifying data, right? Like, how do you know you're right? You don't, you do as deep of a literature review as you can. You know, that brings you back to the importance of intelligence, right? But I would say also, you know, open source intelligence these days is almost as telling as I think you know, any other kind of intelligence source. Protected intelligence is very good, I feel like, in the short term, like when we're trying to figure out what's happening tomorrow. But if you're trying to figure out like what a trend is over a decade or what this guy's personality is, I mean, you gain a lot just by listening to speeches, by seeing what their public remarks are, what are the things they talked about in college, what are the things that they're talking about today, and you kind of find a center of mass when you're talking about the individual. And then the person, you know, at the when you think about the group, the population, those things are almost entirely demographically derived. And then the behavior of international audiences is basically strategy, right? And strategy only works in the open. So you kind of have to know what the other person wants so you can make a counter offer. Uh, if you're too secret in strategy, basically you end up getting the thing you didn't want because the other person didn't know what you wanted, right? So on the lower end of the scale, it's just the nature of the population is that it's demographically driven, psychologically driven, uh, but you're dealing with a mass of people, right? So it's really about knowing fields like psychology, philosophy, and other things to make generalizations. Could you make the wrong generalizations? Absolutely. And I tell people if they're going to replicate this or play it a different way, right? The point of this is it's a framework. It's a game. It's not the answer. It's it's a way to think through problems. And I hopefully other people will take it and try different combinations of things um, and different scoring and see what, what comes out. But the number one place I tell people to go to if they want to change the outcomes is look at the scoring of the motivations, right? Like, is this what people really want? Do they really feel that strongly about it? Is there a higher level of actualization that I didn't identify that could be included and that changes the whole scale? Absolutely, all those things are true. So there are no guarantees. It's another method in the tool bag, but what it does is it it brings some rigor to the spitball or the bog sat type of, of situation where people are just in that thinking fast and slow from Daniel Kahneman, type one versus type two thinking, right? If people are just in their type one mode and they're like feeding off of each other's energy and they're going back and forth and they're talking really rapidly, right? Like, okay, good. 
great, but I hope there's somebody in the background taking notes and going back and thinking with their type two brain and saying rationally, like, well, does that really match? Or is this just like the last thing the last person saw on TV and that's what's on their mind, right? So it's kind of like a triangulation around hopefully a solution and less of finding the solution. I don't think you'll ever, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, maybe AI will figure this out for us, but I don't think there'll be an algorithm that tells us this is the future, right? But it can tell us like, why is this thing that we don't think makes sense continue to happen? And that's kind of what the goal was with this. Why does Russia keep invading other countries even though they know they're gonna get sanctioned? Why do they continue to cooperate with China even though China is probably after Russia's resources almost exclusively or their technology and in the long run is a larger strategic threat to them than the West will probably ever be. Why is this happening? And the answer that you come to by going through the game theories is that it's not about Russia and it's not about the West, it's about Putin and how does Putin stay in power? And then you can create the narrative that lets people understand how that works. So yeah, it's definitely not a predictive tool per se. It can sometimes be predictive, but I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket to say the next time you run this game and you change the numbers that you should do whatever it says on the backside. But when you see things that don't make sense, but you have a game that helps you understand and helps you describe that to other people, okay, well then there's some explanatory power there that is very valuable. And it's a more rigorous solution than just an analyst's thoughts on a piece of paper, right? Because it, it goes through different choices and it says, okay, I pursued this, I pursued that, right? And so it's also a kind of a record keeping tool, right? It says, I looked at each of these things, here's how it works in each of these cases. And now I can kind of think through qualitatively, narratively, why these things could be true or not true. And ah, I never even thought of this because I never thought of these three combinations of choices coming together in this way. But because I explored the entire space of choices, like we defined each actor and each actor has three choices, for example. That means you only have, you know, eight worlds. Then I explore very specifically each of those eight worlds. Then I can come to some sort of understanding better that maybe I would have only thought about worlds one through five if I was just thinking it through in my head as opposed to a game structure. I think that's a value of it as well. So I don't know that I answered your question because I think it was more about how do you know you're measuring it right? And I would say, number one, you need to have people with a strong background in these areas, right? Like you can't just throw somebody, you can't throw throw your China expert at Russia and expect them to get it exactly right. They'll do the best they can, but it's better if you have a Russia expert. But you also need people that are specialized in functional areas, psychology, human motivation, and other things, not just in what's happening in the world in those areas too. So I think it has to be multidisciplinary. Either the person needs to be multidisciplinary or you need to include different people from different disciplines when you go about that. And that's probably your best protection against making errors. Awesome. Thank you so much. You mentioned you know having people who specialize in different countries and functional areas. And we're going to talk about red teaming a little bit more later, mm-hmm. but one of the main methods of doing that, especially when you're talking about an adversary or, or a population that you don't share a whole lot of base sim- similarities with, is there an advantage to considering their own scholarly perspective on things like psychology, political theory, international relations? You're talking of, about of the other, for example. So yeah. like if you're studying Russia, do you, should you be reading what Russians are writing? Exactly. Yeah, that should be the first thing that you're reading, right? Like you should not be reading what Americans are writing about Russia. That's like the worst idea, right? Because 
Yeah, that's the worst idea. So <laughs> always start with you can't. And that's the problem a lot of times in the United States is we don't have a deep tradition of language uh, education, right? We have a lot of people from a lot of different places. So we end up globally, as far as the country goes, we can aggregate those language people together in, in something like the army. But each of us doesn't necessarily contain a lot of language capability like you would find in Europe. So things like the Foreign Military Studies Office are essential because they have people that are not only steeped in that language, they've also got the characteristics and the functional understanding of the military to interpret those things appropriately, right? So that that is key, right? And that's another thing that the intelligence community brings on board is that they, they oftentimes have people with, with language capabilities that, that we don't. So yeah, I mean, that's something that you've really got to dig into. And something I've been trying to do is like, what are Europeans talking about? Not what are Americans talking about in Europe? Because you only go as deep as that person knows. Like, Maybe they did a summer abroad. Maybe they took an undergraduate program. In this day and age, it's just as easy to get on LinkedIn, on Zoom or something else and talk to a European and see what they're actually saying. And I think that's also the value of NATO and having like NATO ACT headquarters right here in the Hampton Roads area is these are experts in their own countries for sure. And how each of those countries views their neighbor and oftentimes a lot of these folks have relatives in countries that we're interested in. And it's also the same of immigrants that join the military, right? That's another powerful tool that we should make sure that we're leveraging, right? It's because these folks have uh, specialty knowledge that is beyond what you can learn in school. And there's just something about that that is especially, I think, salient. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think that that transitions really beautifully into this next question about how can the Army start integrating this knowledge, these various resources that it has at its disposal um, into education, training, and leader development to not only increase our own understanding of potential adversary decision-making, but even our own. Yeah, I think, you know, the Army has a lot of great programs. First of all, they're paying for education left and right. So all education is good. We could probably do some more about targeting education, but there are a lot of great programs out there that are targeting education. I don't want to be a naysayer of any of that. Uh, I think one big area that could help us rapidly improve is if we opened up our professional military education. Right now, it's treated like academic courses, right? You go to the school when you're assigned the school, you go to the coursework, whether it's virtual or in person, and then you take tests and the tests are graded and it's accredited, et cetera. But if I'm a captain or a lieutenant and I want to understand how to do combined arms maneuver at the general staff level, I don't know why we would want to keep that information from them until a certain time, right? And I know that's not the intent. That's not what anybody's trying to do, but that's functionally what ends up happening. And there's a lot of complicating factors to that, right? Like number one is accreditation. Number two is that you have to keep the system honest, right? And so so if you're grading people to see if they're actually doing the work, then if you give them all the information up front, people, some people will have what some people believe is an unfair advantage. But in my mind, we would be much better off if we opened up every course to every person in the Army and let people at least look at the materials and take maybe automated tests. If there's a need for that kind of accreditation and degree seeking for the Army from professional military education, I'm sure we could do modules beyond that, that would be protected and would be able to be changed out and everything so that it didn't become stagnant. 
but I would rather see PME become more like a masterclass or a MOOC or an edX or a Coursera than waiting for my time to leave the unit and everything else. Now, the flip side, there are some perverse incentives there. If you open that up, how do you guard against the expectation that everyone should have every class all the time, right? Uh, otherwise, people aren't doing their jobs. They're just going to school all the time. So you'd have to protect against that. But I would think that if the Army has developed coursework that teaches you how to do something, if you find yourself in that position somehow out of timing with the timeline that the Army has built, you should be able to access that information. And I think that would help go a long way, especially in unusual situations. If there's like an intelligence block of instruction and you're an infantry officer and you can gain access to that, you should absolutely be able to gain access to that so that you can understand the environment better. But a lot of times, there's a lot of things that people know that nobody knows because they haven't been exposed to them yet. And I think that would be the biggest change in the education world that we can make to leverage the tools that we already have without having to recreate a lot of new things. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I guess to round this out, you talk about mirror imaging in relation to morality and rationality. And I know this is backtracking a little bit, but are there more red team techniques that you recommend when it comes to exploring the issues of comparative decision-making analysis and game theory modeling of leaders and leader thought processes? And is there anything that you wish you'd considered that you weren't able to when you were developing your study? Well, I'll say I don't know of any that I've learned of since I did the study because I just haven't had time to explore much more than that. I've been kind of rewriting this in different forms since I wrote it. I think from a red teaming perspective, there's two main components, critical thinking and cultural awareness and empathy. And I don't think the course is even still being taught anymore because I think it was associated with something that wasn't relevant to large-scale combat operations. I think that was maybe what happened. I don't know. I wasn't in that room. But it is just as necessary today to have cultural empathy and awareness and critical thinking. Specific tools, problem reframing is a key one, right? So If you always approach a problem in the same way, you're going to miss different components of solutions that are possible out there. So reframing, the example of that in my game is is the normal perspective was state on state interest. Reframe the problem, make sure that the autocrat is taken into consideration. How does that restructure things? Okay, now we're gonna have a three level game. Okay, well, how does that work? Somebody else could reframe it again and have a four-level game, a five-level game, right? There's all kinds of ways to reframe it. And I don't want to say that the way I reframed it is the right way because I'm sure it's not. But it's, it's a step in a different direction. And I encourage other people to take other steps in different directions too to see what else we can learn. One of the most powerful tools I can think of is stakeholder mapping. I use that not only with traditional network analysis that you would use uh, from an intelligence perspective, but for the adversary, but you should be using that on your friends, right? Who's who in the zoo is, as the bosses always like to say, right? Well, map it out. And what are those network connections? Who has really strong nodes? They may not be someone in an important position, but they may know a lot of people that have a lot of knowledge. Network science tells us that complex problems are solved at the periphery of the network, not the core of the network. But we spend a lot of times reinforcing the core of our networks and not our peripheries. So reinforcing the core looks like finding the best person for the job and getting people that are you know, well-trained and, and suitable for substitution for the variety of jobs that you hold you know, inside your organization. But periphery-type solutions would be who knows who knows who. So you know, 
I can ask them about this unusual thing that I only deal with once every five years, right? I don't need that person in my organization. I need to just have access to them, right? So stakeholder mapping allows you a way to kind of keep track of those relationships uh, and access the power of the network. Uh, the five whys, I think, is a great tool to try to get down to the root problem, right? Like, so uh, why did you build your game this way? Well, because the old way didn't work. Well, why didn't the old way work? Well, because it was state-on-state -state interactions, and that doesn't seem to be working. Well, why do you think state-on-state's bad? Well, because it's more complicated than that. There's more people. Well, why do you think those other people matter? Well, we can see, right? So you just keep going through, and you can do like the 30 whys. I mean, you'd be a pretty annoying person if you did that, but you know, if you want to do that with yourself, that's probably the best technique. But if you keep asking why, eventually you get to the point where there's really not any other answer, and then maybe you found the root thing that you should be studying. Uh, so I think that's a very powerful technique. The Delphi technique where you get different specialists and or, or knowledgeable people and you give them the same problem and you ask them their, their opinions kind of separately and then you bring those opinions together and compare them together, I think is another valuable uh, methodology as well. So those are some other kind of things that are identified in the Red Team book that can be useful. You mentioned uh, network analysis and periphery solutions when it comes to Russia specifically. When doing your game with Russia and identifying Putin and the Russian people, were there any periphery actors that you considered or, or excluded from your game uh, for different reasons? And how might that manifest differently with a different country, a different leader, a different government structure? I'm trying to see how many catchphrases I can squeeze into one interview, right? But the, the, the old saying that uh, all models are incomplete, but some are useful, right, holds true here. Obviously, oligarchs are a huge part of the Russian government. The, the intelligence apparatchiks are, are a huge part of the government, right? Like, there's people that ask if Putin is actually in charge or if it's just the FSB and Putin's the face man for it, right? Like, I, I'd say that's probably harder to justify these days than previously. But at the end of the day, it's probably the, the intelligence community that will replace him with someone else if, if that time comes. Um, so, you know, there's all these other actors, but at a certain point, I, I group those folks together with Putin, right? And said, he's been so good at centralizing his power. And I, I showed kind of through the research where that's happened over and over again, whether it's through restrictions in the media, you know, all the people falling out of windows, you know, and a whole number of things that are happening over and over again. There's this definite insinuation uh, that it seems clear that he is consolidating his power. So, right, that kind of neutralizes their impact in some ways, right? So you kind of take it, you write it down that it's a an assumption or a, a variable that you're kind of overlooking, and, and then you just remember that it's there for when the analysis comes back, and that when you're doing your backwards checking, you can kind of see, would this have changed my perspective if I would have done this in a different way? But if somebody wants to go about putting them in in a four-person game, Another option would be modeling the internal dynamics of the government, right, with the, the regional governors, which have also been losing power, right? The federalization of the, the, the external states has been happening uh, again and again over time, and, and they've uh, become less powerful. Um, you could do that. You could also look at CISTO members, right? Like, what, what are the influence of Central Asian states? What are the impacts of former Soviet states? What are the impacts of places like Georgia or uh, places like Transnistria, South Ossetia, are they actors in addition to being kind of pawns in some ways? You know, like what is their actual role? Do they have a feedback mechanism back uh, into the selectorate, into the lovers of power? 
Yeah, these are absolutely things that could be either gamed separately and then you come up with a choice and feed it into the main game or you could change the structure of a game. What I've found in the literature is that even though there are people that influence decision making, at the end of the day, the buck stops with the autocrat. And I think that's becoming true not only in Russia, but more and more in China as well. There's consolidation of power, uh, which then allows these dynamics to occur. If they weren't occurring, what you would find is a different type of game. Because if there was distribution of power, it would change the dynamics to the point where the negotiator wasn't really that that big of a player. And you could kind of return back to the state-on-state interest game. And it would make sense, right? Like the state-on-state interest game works amongst democracies because everybody's kind of playing the game, right? But it's when you have a mismatch of governance where it doesn't work so much. And it definitely doesn't work with autocrats. All right, Nate, this has been such a great conversation. Um, We really, I feel like we could talk to you for hours about these things. Mostly because Um, I'm talking for hours. (laughs) Sorry about that. Well, I feel like we've touched on so many different topics. I mean, we talked about game theory, red teaming, the weight of leaders and their decision-making all the way to army PME. So, so many different things are all very, very important. But I think we kind of want to move on to our rapid-fire questions here. These are the questions that we ask all of our guests and kind of help our audience get to know our guests a bit more. So we'll just start off with the first one. What threat or trend keeps you up at night? This one's the easiest one, unmitigated social media. I wrote about this in 2014 in the School of Advanced Military Studies for my monograph. And I found that it's most likely going to lead to the balkanization of societies and then the re-aggregation into tenocracies, right? So you could see places like Catalonia, no offense to any NATO members out here as I say this, but you could see like a Brexit happening and then Scotland breaking away and then Scotland joining the EU, right? So like the issue is, is like you have maintenance needs and then you have your aspirational needs. Your maintenance needs, economies of scales work great for that. That's why technocracies are great for those things. Where they don't work so great is for cultural things, right? And so in this identity-driven world where I can find 10 to 100 people to 1,000 people that agree with me without having to compromise, it's very easy to form uh, these little network bubbles that uh, I don't have to compromise with anyone else. And so I think that's a that's a big problem. But I don't think the solution is going to be through policy and regulation. I think it's going to be through education and critical thinking skills. All right. Well, this one might be a little bit harder than um, what's something about you that most people might not know? Well, I think everyone knows now that I can't be I have no brevity. So that's that's something everybody probably already knows. But uh, I bet most people don't know that I play the drums. I started playing big band music when I was young. And uh, so I'd play in the pit band with the orchestra, which was a hired orchestra. So they'd hire like local college guys to play the piano and the and the guitar and stuff like that and they'd pay them and but I played the drums and I played with them and they did not pay me which was not as cool but I thought it was cool because I was in this band with these guys they would take a cut of their money and give it to me which I thought was very cool of them and then they would invite me to play sometimes at other places which was also very cool so yeah that was that was fun and last but not least what is your favorite movie favorite movie so I think you know this is probably the question of the century right like if you get this wrong you are really setting yourself up for failure this pretty much reflects your entire identity so you've got to play this card just right I think and so like it's easy to go with something like hilarious right like airplane or something like that if people still know what that is uh, or if I'm showing my age or you can go full 
like militaristic with something like Top Gun, which was also another good one. I think the key factor in all these is quotability, right? Like, so it's, I think the best movie is one that you can quote socially, but also at work. And so for that reason, I choose the right stuff uh, as my my top movie because one, it's multidisciplinary, right? You've got all these stereotypical characters that are interacting. And I think a lot of us can see ourselves in multiple people in that movie, whether it's the test pilot or the engineer or, you know, the administrator or whoever it is, you know, at different points of our life. But, uh, you know, after working at Futures and Concepts Center, I think the quote, uh, no bucks, no buck Rogers is probably the quote I've used the most uh, over the last few years because you can have a lot of concepts, but if it isn't backed up by money, um, it's not going to go anywhere. So the right stuff is the movie of choice. I'm going to stand on that and see how it goes. No Tarkovsky? Mm, oh, well, okay. Now if we're going to get, let's see, a Brat maybe. Maybe if we're get contemporary 90s Russian movies, we'll go with Brat. Uh, or um, Little Vera is another equally terrifying movie, right? So... The thing about like, I encourage anybody who hasn't watched Russian movies to find like five, five pretty famous ones, watch them all in a row and feel how sad you feel afterwards. Uh, and that's called Toshka, right? It's this feeling of like unease. It doesn't have a direct English translation, but it's, it's pretty foundational in the Russian experience. And so if you want to understand kind of what it means to be a, a Russian person and why they're willing to, why they put up with, but also don't give up with so much stuff. Uh, that understanding of Tashka is pretty, pretty important, but you only get it if you get yourself exceptionally miserable in one sitting. Where can our listeners find you uh, on the internet? Well, so I, I stick mostly to LinkedIn. I hang pretty much everything I do on LinkedIn. I have been posting my work on ResearchGate as well. But uh, yeah, so Nathan Colvin on LinkedIn. I keep it simple that way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a really great conversation. Thanks for your time. Oh, thank you. I, uh, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you putting up with the uh, long-winded answers. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. Once again, I'd like to thank our guest, Lieutenant Colonel Nate Colvin. You can connect with MadSci through Twitter at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you access it. This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience. 